Welcome to the Gambone Law Podcast, the podcast that legal and non-legal professionals turn to for the most recent information about law practice management, the latest legal news, and current events. My name is Alfonso Gambone, and I am the founder of Gambone Law, a criminal defense firm which represents clients throughout Southeastern Pennsylvania and New Jersey. For over 10 years, our law firm has represented clients and their families during the most difficult and challenging times. I've used this experience to write my weekly blogs, newsletters, six books, and make over 250 instructional videos. I started this podcast, however, to provide an inside look into the legal profession, talk about current events with lawyers and non-lawyers, provide my insights on the latest news stories and persons charged with serious crimes. For more information about my firm, visit GamboneLaw.com. If you're a lawyer seeking the greater practice or network, or just a person interested in the criminal defense attorney's perspective, the latest legal news. This podcast is for you. In today's episode, I talk with Ethan Ostroff, who in addition to practicing in the area of personal injury, helps other lawyers manage their practice through workflow development and client generation. Ethan, welcome, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thanks so much for having me today, Alphonse. I appreciate it. And what's the, what's the best way to, what, what's the nickname you like to go by? Um, Al's fine. Al's good. Okay, great. Yeah. I appreciate it. So, uh, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a pretty, pretty new attorney. I started my practice only a few years ago. Um, my first thing that I wanted to do when I started was to start with a website and a way to generate clients. So a few months after I passed the bar, I put out my first piece of social media content and that piece of content went a little viral. And since then I've been putting out content daily on social media and video and have been generating clients for uh, what was my dad's personal injury firm. Uh, just recently, I just went out on my own to start Ethan Ostroff Law, a mass tort and personal injury lead generation firm, um, where I generate cases all across the country and partner up with lawyers who handle those cases with me. And then uh, my, my company, Turnkey Ops, which is a virtual assistant scaling company. So my job is to help firms and businesses delegate their admin tasks to virtual assistants so that they can get out of the weeds and start working on the things that they love to do. So um, it's been a really interesting transition starting my own stuff. I know, Al, you started your own firm some time ago, and you know, obviously you've been in practice for a, a good amount more time than me. I have a much more experience than me. Now, I just cut you off. Sorry, what were you about to say? I'm just curious. You mentioned that uh, you put out a piece of content that went viral. Sure. Uh, what do you believe kind of was the reason why it went viral? If you don't mind, could you probably maybe share what sure. the content was? Was it a video? Was it a, was it a news clip? What was yeah. it exactly? So uh, I was the third lawyer in the country on TikTok. Um, interestingly enough, I put out a short form piece of content it's about 15 seconds seconds long, and it was targeting a specific trend that was happening on TikTok at the time. And the way that you go viral on TikTok is a combination of talking about things that haven't been talked about, or you match, you know, whatever is relevant to you with a trending sound or topic. So there was a trending thing going on on TikTok where you know people would talk about themselves, and they, there was a song that went, "Nope, yup." Nope. And I just was like talking about common misconceptions of being a personal injury lawyer. And I was like, you know, do I chase ambulances? Nope. You know, do, is this uh, is do I wear a suit to work every day? Nope. Uh, and I, I don't even remember everything that I said in the exact video, but it 
wound up going pretty viral, had a, you know, a quarter million views in a few days. And I was like, wow, the power of, you know, video marketing, the power of social media is really crazy that someone who literally put out their first piece of content can have a quarter million impressions is just pretty nuts. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. So now let me ask you, you obviously been around a lot of lawyers your entire life, your father being an attorney. And have, have you noticed what I've noticed that lawyers tend to be in many cases, very good technicians, but not very good managers. It's a really good point. Um, you know, the, the line that I, I use with my clients is law firms are not businesses typically. And to turn your law firm into a business takes an effort of really looking at your systems and making sure that the people are doing the right things and that they're being overseen and trained the right way. You know, if you and I, let's say that a civil case came across our door and, you know, it was a, a systems problem with, a, let's say, a scope of employment. Let's say that, you know, it was a truck driver who was forced to, you know, drive extra hours and they were tired or falling asleep behind the wheel. The way we would set that case up is, you know, were they properly trained? Were they properly supervised? And, you know, our, our law firms are typically run you know, where the, the lawyer is the brain surgeon and they're showing up in court, you know, they are, they're the most important person a lot of the time, but, you know, they're not even doing 90% of the work behind the scenes. And in order for, for them to, to grow their business, as crazy as it sounds, the lawyer who runs the business needs to be doing less lawyering and more managing in order to grow that business. So, you know, it's uh, a lot of the time at, at my previous practice, my dad, I would hear all the time, you know, I'm a lawyer. I just want to practice law. You know, that's, that's what I'm best at. That's what I went to school to do. But, you know, that's not what really makes the business grow at the end of the day. So, so you bring up a good point here about lawyers just wanting to be lawyers. And I don't know about you, but I've been around a lot of lawyers who have incredibly strong academic and professional backgrounds, Mm -hmm. but for some reason have a hard time building a successful law firm and people who have worked for me and people who have even in some cases at our office have asked to sublease space from us. And they have these incredible backgrounds. I remember one gentleman came to us and he did his undergrad at um, Juilliard and then he, he obtained his law degree from Georgetown, ended up working for some very large law firms in, in Philadelphia, and was an incredible writer, very good lawyer. Um, I respected him a lot. In fact, uh, he helped me with some of my motions, and his writing ability was, was just very, you know, on a high level. And But at the end of the day, this same attorney who had this incredibly strong background, had trouble making the rent. Yeah. And, you know, he had to come to me sometimes and say, hey, can I, can I, can I, can I push it back a little bit? And in many cases, you know, you know, well, in all cases, if you had problems, I, I would just kind of, you know, say, listen, this isn't a big deal. You know, we'll handle it and we'll yeah. work through it. But I, but I couldn't figure out why this, this, the, this person who was obviously a good lawyer couldn't, just say it, make money. 
Yeah. I mean, I think that there are really three categories in the most basic sense, maybe four of lawyers. Um, I think that there are case generators um, who can practice law, but, you know, they're providing a lot of value by generating cases. I mean, I, I think of you as a case generator, um, but I also think of you as a rare category where you know what the hell you're talking about as well. So, you know, you're, you're in this rare breed of you can generate and you can handle. Um, and I think there's really three categories. There's people that can't handle who try to, there's people that can handle and that's all they want to do. And then there's generators. And then I would sort of throw one last category that people don't really think about the ones that, you know, can generate and oversee or just oversee the processes. And that's a whole nother skill set. Um, you know, when, when you start a, you know, a, a, a real business, I'll call it, I know law firms, you know, generate money, technically you file a PLLC, but it is, I don't look at it as, you know, the same as running a, a corporation a lot of the time. When you start a corporation, you've got a CMO, you've got a CTO, you've got a COO, you've got a CEO. The way that it is built is foundationally based on how we can be as efficient as possible and oversee every task as much as possible. And, you know, law, lawyers, they just want to file their motions. They just want to be, you know, going and showing up in court because that's all they, they were trained on. So, you know, we get out of law school and no one tells us how to bring in business. No one tells us what's the most efficient way to handle your files. I think it's a pretty big hole in the, in the law school, you know, space, but, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. So, I mean, you bring up a good point. I think some larger firms have kind of looked at that model. And I know that locally there was some law firms, I think it was Pepper Hamilton who had, who had tried to bring in a non-lawyer to kind of run the firm. Right. And I forget what happened with it, but there was a lot of pushback. Yes. Um, and um I think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been more of it because there is the pushback. But, you know, it's it's interesting because in the healthcare field, a lot of times, and this is changing because a lot of doctors are, in addition to earning their medical degrees, are, are, are earning their business degrees. And there's so a lot of hospitals now are being run by doctor slash business persons. Uh, but in the past, in healthcare, a lot of the CEOs of healthcare systems weren't even doctors. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just interesting that the law profession, I mean, do you think we're headed there as far as non-lawyer, I guess you want to call them CEOs of law firms? I can tell you, um, you know, I pride myself on being a little bit of a rare breed that I really enjoy the systems and, you know, evaluating tasks um, and bringing in cases uh, but, you know, kind of going back to the hospital model, you know, your brain surgeons, they're brain surgeons, they're not answering the front desk phone. And in that same extreme, you know, your, your trial lawyers who are your brain surgeons of your law firm, they also shouldn't be answering your front desk phone. But that also means that maybe they shouldn't be in management. Maybe they should be put in a position where they're spending their time doing brain surgery. And if they're doing things that are outside of that, it can be really frustrating for them because they're so good at their craft that they expect to be good at leadership. They expect to be good at mentorship. They expect to be good at, you know, designing systems and they're just not. 
and it's okay. You know, it's, there are people out there that can be trusted to design a really efficient workflow. Um, that person isn't the trial lawyer a lot of the time and that's okay. Uh, I mean, if you go down the street to, to someone like Pond Lahaki, you know, the CEO of their firm is not a lawyer. It's Sean Lahaki. And the reason why is because he's got a, a data science background. He is really bright when it comes to who should do what. And I mean, they've got 200 staff. You know, there's, there's a reason why they've grown the way they've grown because they rely on systems and they rely on organization. Um, go ahead. So you mentioned systems and we mentioned law school and obviously we, we've both been to law school. My undergrad degree is in, is in business and I can look right. back on that and understand that it was a lot of a, just a comprehensive education on, and again, it's, I mean, that's what undergrad business school is, just a comprehensive education on marketing, accounting, management, but law school, I mean, both you and I know I mean, there's, I mean, maybe things have changed a little bit, perhaps. I don't think they have, but because I, I've had interns in my, in my office and they're still teaching, you know, the first year contracts and, you know, the second, the, the second year, whatever, whatever, you know, criminal procedure and the third year, I mean, it's kind of like take what you want, uh, but take what's in the bar. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think you, and, and they have clinicals that perhaps, you know, give you some real world experience, but even those clinicals, you don't get into practice management. And mm -hmm. if anything, it seems like law professors still operate under the same old school model that you're a lawyer, be a lawyer. And you know, I think one lawyer one time told me, well, just be a good lawyer and, and, and the cases will come. And I have to say, that's not true. That's yeah. simply not true. And I mean, how do you feel about that? Do you think law school's need to change. You know, I know that locally Drexel University seems to be, I guess, headed in that direction a little bit. And yeah. that's probably because that at the undergrad level, I know that Drexel looking back always had the co-op programs. And now I, I believe that you can even earn the degree a little, <clears throat> a little, a little more, I guess, quickly, if you say, I mean, because they, they've done things to innovate. But I think that law firms are very concerned about being innovators because yeah. I think once you're seen as an innovator, for some reason, the lawyers who pride themselves on innovation, being creative, looking at systems are kind of by, by many lawyers and maybe these, these technician lawyers looked down upon. And I think that's the problem with law school. I think it's that it's run by professors who have this mentality that, well, we're lawyers and um, yep. we're not, we're not business people. So, I mean, how do you feel about that? I 100% agree with what you're saying. Um, as someone who went to Drexel and who did do a co-op, I can tell you there's pros and cons. You know, I got amazing experience. I, I didn't get paid for it. So I define it as I got paid in reputation. Um, and I worked for Eisenberg Rothweiler and excellence medical malpractice and products liability firm uh, in Philly. And, you know, the experience I got there was invaluable. But at the same time, when I took the bar, I did terrible on certain subjects because I didn't actually have like as many core courses. They, they go more the elective route 
And I think that honestly, their, their bar pass rates actually suffered from it. So it's, it's, I think it's a, it's more of a system problem than a school problem because these schools are really confined because they can't not teach the kids the things that they have to, to know to pass the bar. But at the same time, when they pass the bar, they don't know what the hell they're doing other than going and getting a job. And then if they want to start their own practice, there was never, you know, start your practice 101. There was never case management 101. You know, there, I think that some of those elective courses, there are so few opportunities to take elective courses because you have to pass the bar. But in the few that you do, I think that these would be really helpful. Um, you know, how, if, how to start your own practice, I think would be a great class. Oh, well, that's something that you'll, I, I think that right now we're not, I mean, that, I mean, that is, I mean, in fact, I, I, I will tell you that I um, sometimes will get uh, invitations to, to speak at CLEs, but it's always CLEs from the Bar Association. It's never I've never been invited to speak at a law school. And again, I'm not saying just me, but it, if you notice that a lot of law schools, if you're not at a big firm, it's like, well, you know, we don't have time for you. Yeah. And I think that um, that's a good point. And also with, with regards to the bar exam, and perhaps you and I have a different opinion, but, you know, I've had students in my firm work here and they've asked me, it's going to my third year, what should I take? And I said, you know, I used to say, take what's on the bar. I said, that's going to be most helpful. But looking back, I think that, and this may sound just awful, but I think you could take an educated person, give them the bar review materials, and you gave them eight weeks to go through those, those reviews and do those questions yep. and learn how to answer those questions and by doing the questions, I'm not sure how, how you study for the bar, but I tell everyone the way, the way I passed the bar exam was basically I stopped reading outlines after four weeks. Yep. The reason why I did was because the outlines, I took a practice bar exam and I failed it. And okay. I said, something's got to change. So I started learning the test. Yep. And from that, from that point, I, I just did the questions. And yep. I said, you know, it doesn't really matter the fact that I took torts in law school. I said, because the questions that I'm getting, I mean, you and I went to law school, they're big, long essays. Yep. And to pass the bar, you have to go through, what is it, 250 multiple choice questions, I think it was. It's so, one day of six hours of essays and one right. day of 250 multiple choice. Right. So again, um, I guess we're getting off topic here, but I guess in terms of if there was one thing that law school should do right now to change, if you had to change one thing, what would you do? I think that the behavior around academia is just very traditional. The behavior around our practice is very traditional. The behavior around, you know, being a judge is very traditional. Um, you know, I, 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 this might sound crazy to hear, but three months before COVID, I was arguing and lost in an embarrassing way, a motion for my client from Florida to take a deposition over Zoom. Like, imagine how crazy that is now. I <laughs> lost. In, in fact, the judge like emasculated me about it and I got totally homeboyed about it. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the, the practice, you know, I, I yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. 
Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a good point about judges, and really that's one thing about this profession that always upset me. And it seemed like, and, I, and I'm in courtrooms probably four out of five days a week. Yeah. And, you know, some judges are down to earth, but other judges have this like teacher-student mentality, which I, and it seems like they're going out of their way to embarrass lawyers and young and old. And I, I just said to myself, you know, is it is the fact that perhaps you failed in private practice and you have something against me? Is just something, I mean, I, you know, and that's, I think, one thing that I think goes back to that law school mentality that, yep. you know, it, we're lawyers and we're, we are these technicians and we're not supposed to be innovative or change at all. I mean, I have this as basic of my theory as this sounds. We went to law school to learn precedent from yesterday to prove today. And I think we run our businesses that way. Hmm. Oh, it worked yesterday. Oh, we made a lot of money doing it this way. You know, this is kind of how we're wired. It's not how tomorrow is going to affect, you know, later down the line. It's how yesterday is going to affect today. And I think that our practices are that way. I mean, you know, my, my dad, I, you know, I had a really great experience working at my dad's firm. He used to speak at conferences for case management, for case management software. It's called Needles. Mm. 25 years ago when it was called Pins and, you know, he's being, you know, flown to Atlantis or flown to different places to speak on behalf of this cutting edge technology. Guess what? 25 years, we were still in the same program. What other <laughs> industry do you stay in the same program for 25 years? Yeah. Like, well, that's the normal thing now. Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a good point. I remember when I came into my office, I worked for a lawyer and I, I dictate a lot of everything, you know, the letters, briefs, motions, and, and pe people consider it an old school technique. It's not, and actually it's an incredibly fast time-saving technique. And I, and I actually tell everyone in my office, you know, any attorney who works for me has to be able to dictate. I said, because you are much more efficient. So quick story. I, the attorney I worked for had the old school cassette tapes, you know, the real plastic cassette tapes. And, and uh, one day the system broke and we had to get a fix. So I <laughs> turned the machine over and the number is still there. I called the company's out of business. The, the technician was dead. The, the machine was made in 1983. So we had to go digital. <laughs> it was like I, had, uh, I was committing like uh, high treason or something. But it, it ended up working out. But, yeah. it, you know, I, I kind of want to wrap things up uh, because I know that, you know, um, you're busy. So if I could just, in terms of, I think law firms fail because people don't appreciate just the level of, well, the, the, the level of, um, I hate to say level, but the amount of time that you need to focus on simply bringing cases into your firm. I think people have had this assumption that, again, going back, well, just be a good lawyer and the cases will follow. Yep. I think law firms fail because of that. I do. I think that from day one, if you want to be in practice for yourself, you need to be focused on bringing cases in, just like any business. Mm -hmm. And I mean, would you agree with that? I think that there is two parts to it. And I 100% agree with you. Um, I think there's two parts to it. It's 
let's say that I sent a case to Bob Mongaluzzi and he himself handled that case or Tom Klein. When they walk in the courtroom, that case is worth 10 times more than if I did. That's just a fact. And I totally am humble enough to admit that Bob Mongaluzzi, who has had $100 million verdicts, makes cases more valuable than me. So there's two parts to it. One, yes, bringing in a volume of cases is important depending on your practice type. But then once you have that volume of cases, the part that people typically forget about and what's funny is I have noticed a trend right now more than I've ever seen where these firms for the past three, four years, they started getting savvy at marketing and bringing the cases in. Now they have so many cases in that they have too many cases in their in their glut and they're behind on retrieving deck pages. They're behind on you know retrieving police reports. They're behind on reducing liens. They're behind on, and then they just have this glut. So yes, bringing in cases is critical and being able to find what I would describe as blue oceans, places where you're not spending $200 for a personal injury click, somewhere that you can get that same kind of quality lead without spending as much, that's really critical. But then once you have them in your workflow, how are you raising your average fee per case? It comes down to who's doing what in that workflow, how effective are you at moving your cases, and how are you measuring and incentivizing your staff to get better fees on those cases? So a model that I've been helping my clients design in a personal injury workflow is a metrics model based on setting a baseline that the case must settle for. So you say, all right, this came, case came into my workflow. I think that it will settle for $100,000. Then you go pre-demand phase and you say, you do another case evaluation. All right, this client got surgery, $200,000. Then you send out a demand. The demand package goes out. You get a $75,000 offer. Then you say, all right, you know, uh, you can have anyone negotiate a case if you set the number that the case can't settle under. I will not accept under $175,000. Every dollar you get above that, I'm going to pay you 5% on. That way you can set guidelines on what you're okay with that case settling. Then you're encouraging higher average fees on the cases you already have. And you can design a way that the client gets the best benefit, that your people are incentivized to get a lot of money on that case. And you're increasing the value of your inventory you already have. So number one, getting cases in the pipeline. Number two, how are you handling them? Are you having the right people do the right things in that workflow? Are you having virtual assistants get medical records? Or are you having a full stateside staff do that? You know, how, how are you doing that? And then uh, lastly, how are you raising the average fee of all the cases you already have in your business? So Ethan, I want to thank you for coming on today. If lawyers and even non-lawyers want to get in touch with you, uh, what is the best way? Yeah, so uh, I would I, I will drop a link that I'll put in the comments on here where you can schedule a 15 minute call with me. But my email is eo at ethanostroflaw.com. And my name is spelled with two E's. You can blame my parents for that. Um, my grandmother's name was Estelle. So, you know, that's that's the Jewish thing to do. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll leave my email in the comments. But yeah, thanks so much for having me. This was a really great time. I thought this was yeah. awesome. Great. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. So if you have questions, visit the website, gambonelaw.com. You can give us a call at 215-755-9000 in Pennsylvania. 
856-793-7429 in New Jersey. We answer the calls 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Thanks for listening to the Gambo and Law podcast, and I'll talk to you all very soon.